only time I'm, I am ever really relaxed is when I'm writing. I am one of those odd writers who loves writing. And the moment when I flip open my computer in the morning and I start typing is almost deliriously happy one for me. And it's the only time and place in my life where I feel wholly at ease. Hello, hello, hello. I'm Katie Lazarus. Welcome to Employee of the Month. And I am so delighted on this episode to bring you Adam Gopnik, whose work I fell in love with in one of his essays, Bumping into Mr. Ravioli. He is best known as a New Yorker staff writer, which has enabled him to be the senior, junior, and everything in between correspondent in Paris. He's an exceptional art critic as well as food critic and has had what can only be surmised as a dream career. His writing is riveting and continues to shed so much light, um, particularly right now on politics. So I want to recommend his latest book. It's actually his first political book called A Thousand Small Sanities. It will be coming out. And you, of course, may know um, Paris the Moon at the Stranger's Gate. Uh, the Table Comes First through the Children's Gate and so many more. And he's also a performer. We talk about all of that and more in this episode of Employee of the Month. Here's my conversation with Adam Gopnik. Adam, I know that this is one of your greatest honors. You've been at The New Yorker for over 34 years. That's right. Um, how does it feel finally winning the coveted Employee of the Month Award? I've been waiting for it all this time. You know, the funny thing about it, Katie, is, is that you remain the person you were when you entered employment. <laughs> so that I entered as a rookie. You know, I was a kid still in my late 20s, and I was, I felt like a rookie. I was writing Talk of the Town, you know. Uh, running all over New York in my sneakers to Flatbush for our table hockey tournaments and to, you know, a, a boat in the East River to talk to a slack rope walker. And I still feel entirely like that person. I think now I am, I've never really computed this, but I'm probably the second or third most senior person still publishing regularly. Roger Angel is, you know, 98. What about uh, Rick Hertzberg? Rick is ahead of me, but Rick was gone for Hendrick, a long time. Hendrick Hertzberg. Everybody calls him Rick. But Rick was gone for a long time. Okay. I mean, in terms of continuous presence. But my point is, is that whatever seniority I may have earned, I never have felt senior to anyone in uh, in all my time there. So I love winning the Employee of the Month Award. I'm so happy to hear that. I, I will say that you are the last of a generation in part because um, – what a horrible thing to hear. You're the no, last no, of a generation. No, because any of us, anyone who's a writer would, would is so desperate for a journalism job. And so I wanted to ask if that insecurity is there at all, given the fact that uh, journalism is Im imploding. Like, you're one of the few people I know. Who has a job. Who, who has, has a job, <laughs> an actual job. Yeah, even though I believe all New Yorker writers are technically freelance. Uh, it's complicated and varies. Everybody has a has a mysterious and occult relationship. <laughs> it's like the mantra you get when you go to the Maharishi Mesh. You're never supposed to tell what your mantra is. You never tell what your deal is with the magazine. Um, I, I probably should have much more flop sweat and feelings of precariousness about it than I seem to do. But it's true, you know, if to can generalize a, a little bit. When I was coming of age, and I wrote an entire book about this through the yes. at the Stranger's Gate. I went through the Children's Gate and at the Stranger's Gate. If I can't remember it, no one to no one else can. Uh, but it was about how when we were coming of age, our generation in the 1980s, on the one hand, it was very hard to get published, right? I tell yes. my kids now. It was as if you have to imagine that there were 500 computers in New York that could go online and you were desperate – 
to get your fingers on one of those keyboards because you couldn't just write stuff and post it on Medium or any place right. else. You had to actually be published in print to count as a writer. There were no pixels in the world. Um, and so on the one hand, it was much harder to get heard. On the other hand, if you were heard even a little bit, yes. you were immensely proud. So I've I've give this example in the book. My first real job was as the grooming editor of GQ magazine. And everybody thinks I made that up, but it's absolutely true. I will say for the radio audience, you are exceptionally well-groomed. Oh, thank you very much. Yes, I struggle to. But, you know, that's not entirely a joke that you're, you're <laughs> making being, it one. I'm being completely serious. Is that <laughs> I got so – I began as the fashion copy editor, and I won't bore you with the difference between being a fashion copy editor and a grooming editor, but I was promoted on the strength of a, of a famous tag, Chiara Scoro Chic to be the grooming editor. And I was put in charge of moisturizers and shampoos and so on. And I actually began to use a moisturizer at that point in my life. And I have never, uh, never surrendered it. But the point I was going to make is, is that um, not very long ago on Lena Dunham's famous, I suppose now notorious show, Girls, her character, H- Hannah, was a young, struggling writer who wanted to be an essayist. Yeah the voice of a generation, all of that, got exactly the same job at GQ that I had had 30 years before. Only I viewed it as this wonderful thing, a chance to actually have your stuff in print and a step on the ladder to Parnassus. And her character on the show views it as an absolute trap, a source of complete depression. She has been caught. And all the people around her, a young poet, a young writer, feel equally entrapped by GQ magazine. And I thought that was a very generational story. A thousand percent. I mean, I, I never even thought to ask for money for internships. Yes. I was grateful that they couldn't technically fire me. Right, exactly. <laughs> and the notion that you would have this absurd and meaningless job, absurd, I should say, not absurd, um, meaningless job that you nonetheless were delighted to have. I remember having all the galleys from, you know, like the absurd GQ, the man style. Awards. Yeah. And, yeah. and I remember taking them to a restaurant, still there, I noticed, on Third Avenue to sort of be seen editing in that way. I was thought I was at the center of literature, show business, and the circus. And that feeling, I don't think, is available anymore because if you get a job like that, you feel entrapped by it rather than empowered by it. Uh, so it was, it was a very different time. This is a very long-winded way of saying that, obviously, uh, arriving at The New Yorker, as I did, is, relatively speaking, young was the great professional event of my uh, of my life. And uh, obviously I was lucky and fortunate and blessed to get it. And I knew it. I will, the only thing I will say on my, own, my behalf of my own good fortune is, is that I certainly recognized it as good fortune and still do. Your family has a particularly interesting, I mean, there are many things interesting about them. One, that they're Jewish and have six children. Yes, Catholic sounds like a Catholic <laughs> way of Jews, Jewish hillbillies, yeah. And then the second is if you could share your story about your grandparents. Oh, my God. That's, you know, that's one of those stories that's a good story because you had no idea it was a good story when you were actually participating in it. <laughs> so my parents got married extremely young when they were still in their teens, and in that strange way of uh, exuberant, ebullient, young Jewish intellectuals of the 1950s, they wanted to repopulate the world completely. So they had six kids before they were 30. Uh, William James said once the only country he felt that he was a citizen of was the James family. And I always felt that and as well, that I, the only country I felt a citizen of was the Gopnik family. But it was almost like being in an alternate universe even more than another country. 
Was this in Philadelphia or Montreal? It was both. Um, my parents were students at Penn. And they got their degrees at Penn. That's what they were doing while they were having all these children. And then once they had their degrees, they got teaching jobs at McGill and Montreal. So our family life was neatly divided between the two towns. Um, anyway, what happened is, and is a sign of just how deeply uh, inward turning and insane my family is, my mother's mother was her favorite parent and my father's father was his favorite parent. They both had troubled relationships with the other one. And after my parents were already married and I was already born, my father's father fell in love with my mother's mother. And they divorced their spouses. My grandfather, my the only one I ever knew, actually went to Las Vegas and worked as a busboy to get a Nevada divorce. And they married. So my I only ever had one set of grandparents, my mother's mother and my father's father, Ellis, my named after Ellis Island, my father's oh, wow. father, and Siamy, my mother's mother. And not only did I think it was totally normal to only have one set of grandparents, I thought it was totally normal that your grandparents would exactly imitate in sort of cartoon-like form all the traits of your parents because my they were um, you know simpler and less educated people than my parents but temperamentally hmm. they were exactly alike my grandmother Siamy was a very uh, extremely smart impatient uh, nervous high strung woman very much like my mother and my uh, grandfather Ellis uh, Al everyone called him Al and he was very much like my father he was a much simpler version of my father a gentle uh, humorous joke loving man so I had this one set of grandparents, and I never understood that that was strange. And, uh, you know, they were – my grandfather uh, had either a very good or a terrible sense of humor. And he had a series <laughs> of jokes, which I have passed on to my own children. And, uh, you know, uh, who's your favorite group? Joe Banana and his bunch, the music with appeal. Um, hey, you know, your kid says to you, I don't feel well. – he says, oh, do you feel stiff in the joints? And he says, yeah. And you say, stay out of the joints. <laughs> I could go on for half an hour. But I that was that my jokes. that was my grandfather's sense of humor and unfortunately it remains my own. I, I feel that that is a, a rites of passage, whether or not you were bar mitzvahed to, to inherit dad jokes. And in fact, whether or not you ascribe to any of the monotheistic religions. But it is so funny to hear about your family because I was with a, a friend who is um, very much Protestant and he was describing his girlfriend and saying, well, you know, she's crazy because her grandfather is also the half brother of her Great uncle. And I said, yes, that's the case in my family as well. <laughs> so. Well, you know, it's funny, though, about jokes as a kind of Jewish sacrament, because that was certainly the case in my family. That was comedy was a religion in my family. It's yes. what took the place of religion. Um, I discovered you through uh, two of your essays, which still make me laugh when I'm you know, on the subway by myself. Uh, one was about Barney. Yes. And and one was, of course, about Charlie Ravioli. Barney in Paris and bumping into Charlie Ravioli, yes. And I wanted to ask because— One about my son, one about my daughter at approximately the same ages. That's right, yeah. Uh, maybe that's my developmental age where I got <laughs> stuck. But <laughs> what I really wanted to ask, because you are so palpably hilarious on the, on the page, if you had any desire, whether you're starting out then or now, to, to be a comedy writer— uh, not only did I have a desire, it was I had two ambitions when I arrived in New York in 1980. One was to be a songwriter and the other was to be a comedian, um, to do stand-up. And I failed utterly and entirely in both. And the truth is... What do you mean that you failed in both? I, I am neither in the straightforward and self-evident sense that I am neither 
a comedian. I am now a songwriter. I actually wrote a musical, yes. which got produced. Um, but I am with David Shire. You wrote the, the, the books and lyrics. It was originally called Our Table, and we've changed the title back now. We did it at uh, Fifty Four Below, a concert oh. version, about a month ago, and we'll have a concept album of that evening coming out. And now it's called again Our Table. But yes, I wrote it with the great David Shire, and that's a whole other story. But I loved. I was, as I said, I grew up with it. My family will tell you, and I th- actually have a theory about why this is true, that my little brother Blake is hilariously funny, and I am not particularly around a dinner table, or I, the kids tend to groan rather than, as, rather than laugh as they do at my brother. I am, however, much funnier. He is not funny on the page at all, and I think I can say after a cumulative 35 years that I can be funny on the page. And here's my theory about it, I that, and you can speak about this with more authority than I can, having done it. But though comedians as a group are incredibly high-strung and nervous, the key to comedy is relaxation. The key to comedy is relaxing an audience. It's this beautiful moment when an audience suddenly clicks in and you can sort of do anything with them. Now, I do know a little bit about that because uh, I do do a lot of storytelling. You do exceptional stories for for The Moth as well as your own solo show. Exactly. And storytelling is like, you know, the poor man's stand-up. It's stand-up for people who lack the nerve to actually do stand-up. Because when you're doing stand-up, as you've done it, or as our, we talk about our friend Judy Gold or any good stand-up, it's a binary on and off thing. They're laughing or they're not. When you're doing storytelling and they're not laughing, you can tell yourself they're really moved. <laughs> they're really, they're with you. They're in it. Do you see how silent they are? They're so inside the story, right? So you always have a lifeboat out of... Uh, storytelling, because you don't have, like, Spalding Gray, right? Spalding Gray, may, you know, great figure, may he rest yes. in peace, um, was funny a lot of the time, but he didn't have to be funny the way Jerry Seinfeld has to be right. funny. So I do this one-man show, which I think has several very funny moments in it, but I have the release that I can say, you know, this, it was thoughtful. I'm, I, you know, I'm coming out now, and they're not laughing. They had a very pensive moment there that I can put in. But... In all of my life, you can probably hear it in the in the nervous tension in my voice as I speak and so on. The only time I'm, I am ever really relaxed is when I'm writing. I am one of those odd writers who loves writing. And the moment when I flip open my computer in the, mo- in the morning and I start typing is almost deliriously happy one for me. And it's the only time and place in my life where I feel wholly at ease. And I think that's the reason why I can be funny on the page and I'm not at all funny or particularly funny in life. Uh, that is so beautiful. And to know that you continue to get in that trance and have that dance with your writing, um, considering that you've gotten the accolades in addition to Employee of the Month and, you know, sort of gotten the brass ring or yeah. the gold ring. Uh, well, I will add, you know, I've been doing this storytelling and writing, too, for on what we call the perpetual tuition tour. So though the ring may be brass, nonetheless, it has to be uh, rubbed. And there is no genie at the end of uh, in that particular brass ring, but bronze, bronze. I, you know, the Tin. truth is, I <laughs> maybe I aluminum like writing, foil. <laughs> I like writing more even now than I did when I was twenty-five. Why is that? Uh, two reasons, I think. Uh, one is that a lot of my writing now, and always has been that way, turns on reading. You know, the magazine, my wonderful editor at the New Yorker, Henry Finder, will throw me fifteen books on a general subject. I was just telling you, I just did one on Reconstruction. 
and I've got to sort of pulp them into yeah. into a mush that allows little weeds of thought to grow. And as you get older, I find one of the things that's true is you lose a lot, but you don't lose your ability to read. It actually gets more intense. I, haven't you found that to be true that anybody who likes to read, when you when someone is a happy old person, they almost invariably are reading more than they ever were. They actually, my grandmother, I mentioned before, Saimi, at the end of her life is an old person banished to Florida like all old Jewish people, discovered Trollope, uh, Anthony Trollope, the yes. novelist, and that filled her life. She read Proust. Um, and I think that if you have any taste for reading, one of the blessed things, if you don't actually get dementia or Alzheimer's or something, is is that you become uh, a more, an easier reader even than you were before. So that's part of it. And the other reason is that um, writing is so much a voice and tone. That's why we go to write. Everyone has opinions. Everyone has a take, you know. But when we love a writer, or we don't love them, but in any case, what we recognize in a writer is uh, a voice, a tone. We read Calvin Trillin for the material, yes. but we read him when or, he's writing. Or to get tips on parking spots. Or to get tips. But we read him with equal pleasure when he's writing about parking spots or when he's writing about a murder in yeah. the South. And we read him because of the Trillin tone. That's what we take greatest pleasure in more than the particular subject matter that he's chosen on that time. And I think that once you have be, have found your voice or found your tone, you can now, I'm sure there are people shaking their heads and saying, yeah, you found it and exhausted it. And that's one of the risks of being a writer is that you wear out your voice. You literally get a kind of literary laryngitis after time. And we could talk about the various ways in which you try to avoid that. And I don't know that you ever really can. But uh, once you have a voice, that hard work, which is the horrible hard work of the first 10 years of being a writer, is who am I? What do I sound like on the page? Once you sort of know what you sound like on the page, there's uh, enormous pleasure in just uh, in playing with that, with those sounds. I have three questions at once, and I don't want to forget them. Okay. <laughs> Do I say them aloud, hoping that you'll Please. remember them? <laughs> One of the questions is when you write so masterfully, you can write better than the book you're reviewing. I wanted to, I, I wanted to know what it's like to write a, a profile of a book or someone else's work. And I know if I read uh, Manola Dargis, sometimes mm -hmm. I'll, I'll think that this movie is going to be something that it isn't. And in fact, it's, it's a, because her writing is so it's good. It's a film by Manola Dargis. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I feel utterly mm -hmm. underwhelmed <laughs> when I go to see the film. And so I wanted to ask about that. The the Another thing I really wanted to ask about, because there are six of you, I was so curious to what extent I wanted to hear about, you know, if there's competition, you you all have overlap. Uh, you know, your sister's a, a famed psychologist, your brother's an art critic, but the fact is, is that you're all exceptional in these areas and able to talk about psychology and art um, with equal dexterity. So we can start with those two questions um, in no particular order. Uh, well, you know, um, in the first question, I think one of the reasons why uh, most authors actually dread being reviewed in The New Yorker is because they know that what, not just me, Louis Menand or me or Anthony Lane or uh, Jill Lepore will do is to take their book and mulch it. They'll take, we'll take out all the, we'll give them two lines of praise, there, there, a little pat on the head, and then we'll proceed to explain what the contents of the book are, and then imply, it, and it's a pretty good book, but we could have, I could have done it much better, 
uh, if I had given the chance. And here's what I would have, how I would have concluded and how I would have organized it. But there, there, Professor whomever, uh, fine effort, fine effort. And then nobody has any, you know, of the you know, million and a half readers of The New Yorker now have no desire to go out and buy the book. Because yes. they feel that they've digested it. The New York so, Review of Books, I exactly. mean, absolutely, has probably ruined literary Exactly. Careers. So uh, someone once said, I think Nicholson Baker, that actually um, consciousness is not changed by books. It's changed by book reviews. And I fear that that's, there's, there's truth in that. So it's infuriating, I know, to, to uh, authors sometimes. I think, though, that to defend the practice is um, me, uh, Big Luke, as we call him, Louis Manan, Big Luke Manan, to distinguish him from my son, small Luke, um, is uh, we're essayists in the first instance. And to tell the filthy secret of it, we're entertainers as well. Uh, both of us are out to write a delightful piece, the sentences, the language, the style. Now, I take the ideas extremely seriously. I'm writing about gun control or incarceration. Or Diderot. Or, or Diderot or, or um, uh, Reconstruction. Those are deeply serious subjects about which I have passionate feelings. But the... Criteria for me, or is always, is this fun to read? Will this be fun to read? Is this delightful to read? Will you, whether you agree with it or not, or interested in it or not, will you say, "I don't want my twenty minutes back, or however long it takes, half an hour, from having read that"? That was uh, a pleasure to read, and I know Manan feels the same way, and so that's a justification for our uh, our habits of uh, mulching and growing our own flowers on it. To your second question, and just to conclude that point. I feel that, you know, I said, and it's true, I wanted to be a songwriter and I failed or I'm in the process of succeeding in middle age. Um, I wanted to be a comedian and never even got that off the ground. But I also wanted to be an essayist. And an essayist is what I am. And an essayist is a very specific thing. It's not just uh, somebody who writes uh, freelance prose. It's, uh, it's a specific form with a specific tradition and specific rules. And the first rule of it is, is it always, an essay should be fun to read. And the second rule of it is that an essay is, and this is a horrible cliche, but true nonetheless, is in its original French sense, an essay, a try. It's an attempt. It doesn't pretend to be magisterial, conclusive, or finished. It's one voice exploring a subject. The subject may be your child's imaginary friend, or the subject may be recent books on Diderot. But that's the uh, attempt. So I love essays, and I am uh, proud to have spent my life mostly as an essayist. The Gopnik family, siblings, and their rivalries. That's why I want to write this book someday called Just Us, a memoir of family. It's immensely complicated. You know, you unintentionally traced one of the complications of it in just what you said about it. There are three um, overly um, articulate, loud Gopnik children, my sister Allison, psychologist, my little brother, Blake. I love you referring to her as loud because she also uh, has a, a deep interest in Buddhism. Yes. And she and but she's a very uniquely forceful person. And so we three are kind of public. We're the public siblings. The other three, my sister Morgan is a scientist. My sister Hillary is a very uh, distinguished archaeologist, now teaches in Australia, actually. My uh, littlest sister, Melissa, who spent her life in public health, um, are equally distinguished, but have, um, uh, I won't say lower, but let's say uh, quieter uh, public profiles. More like your grandfather. Yes. And so right away, that sets up an interesting opposition of the th- of three versus three, the three loudmouths versus the three um, quietly poised ones. Uh, I think that the 
stiffest competition within the family, to be perfectly honest, within among the siblings, is simultaneously between Allison and myself. We're barely more than a year apart wow. in age. We grew up very much as twins. Irish know. twins. Yes, exactly. Jewish Irish twins. Uh, reading the same book. We both were voracious readers from a very young age. Reading the same books, sharing the same imaginary landscapes, everything from Salinger to Thurber to Nabokov and beyond. We both can trip each other up in a minute because we both know where every locution, turn of phrase, and image is that one or the other of us has used. We both are devotees of Lewis Carroll, and his work comes up again and again. And we both of us are. We're temperamentally totally unlike. Um, Allison is a person of great uh, overt passion and confidence. I am a person of feigned or simulated uh, <laughs> modesty and charm. We both recognize the falsity of the other's public persona. And I think we love each other through it all. But the very fact that the two of us have that highly competitive and ongoing relationship in turn makes us the big feet within the, the six and also meant that when we were younger, to a degree that I wasn't, obviously, how could I have been conscious of at that age, we were competing for our parents and particularly for my father's attention uh, and at the expense of the youngers. So as with any family, you know, uh, one thing we can say with absolute certainty is there may someday be, you know, a science of affections. There may even be a science of storytelling. There will never be a science of siblings. The back and forth, the complexity, the gravitational push and pull, the strong force attraction, the weak force attraction, the seduction and the rage that goes on between among siblings will always remain a literary subject and not susceptible to uh, full explanation. Absolutely, that it will have to remain anecdotal or qualitative. Novelistic, let's say. Okay. But it is exceptional to hear of a family, see a family, know of a family where each individual is prodigious. Well, you know, that's nice of you to say, and I wouldn't dispute it, but I think Allison said this actually once. I'll, t- I'll claim it for myself. You know, <laughs> if you think about it, the best you can give your own parents is pity and tolerance, and yet you're enraged that your own children give you no more yes. than pity and tolerance. But with all the things that one could be aggrieved about, they um, opened the world of books and ideas to all of us with enormous, not just with alacrity, but ease. You know, it's a funny thing. Uh, I've always been aware of it. The, the one thing in the world, in the kind of world of art and culture that I am totally baffled by is opera. I try to, I go to the opera, I try to stay awake, I try to stay interested, and it seems to me utterly artificial and sort of, it's like, you know, the Marx Brothers in a Night at the Opera just seems like, you know, loud and foolish. And I realize that my, that was the one art form. My parents took us to the theater all the time, to ballet, to dance. Um, but they never took us to the opera. Uh, I think because my father had a prejudice that it was a sort of middle brow, you know, Texaco theater Saturday afternoon thing. And as a consequence, opera remains closed to me. Uh, it isn't. And so my parents did the great good work, which I would urge on all parents, and which I've obviously tried to mimic with my own children, of making art available. Uh, in a very non-insistent way, making it available. And that was, I mean, they were insistent about making it available, but they weren't insistent about how to read it or how to understand it. 
Um, you have a new book coming out, A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. And I've been so grateful because you've actually been speaking about this subject for, for quite a while. Yes, for uh, certainly. You know, like many people, I was uh, impelled somewhat against my will into political uh, writing by the what we can call the events of the last few years. Remember they used that euphemism for 9-11? You know, due to the tragic events, <laughs> yes, the, yes. Uh, the Curious George show is closed now. Um, <laughs> but the events of the last few years and even before then, you know, is, it's as you get older and you have your kids get older, you become more conscious of your responsibilities as a citizen. I don't know how else to put it. So I was um, writing a lot about uh, gun control and incarceration, things I would not have been writing about with quite the same alacrity 20 years ago. But with the rise and election of Trump, I felt a, a particular kind of urgency to stand up for liberalism. And one of the things that made it complicated is, is that what liberalism is, is hard for people to say. Um, for most of the people of my daughter's generation, for instance, they think of neoliberalism, meaning um, unconstrained capitalism ravaging the world. I mean by it something much closer to the way we actually use the term in our common speech. That is, people are committed to, equally committed to um, reform, social reform, and to individual liberty. And that's a complicated balancing act that's, uh, that we take part in. I begin the book after a little preface about uh, my daughter Olivia being traumatized on uh, uh, election night with one of my favorite scenes of the kind of the, the passion of liberalism. And, and one of the goals of the book, is, as I'm sure you've noticed, is to restore the passion to liberalism, not to make liberalism look like wishy-washy centrism. So I open it with the image of uh, the greatest liberal philosopher, John Stuart Mill, with his lover, who was the greatest influence on him and the greatest teacher he ever had, Harriet Taylor, in front of the rhinoceros cage at the London Zoo, where they would sneak off to have clandestine uh, canoodling. And... It was on that, that bench that the ideas for John Stuart Mill's great book on liberty and their great collaboration on the subjection of women both got made. And what's so fascinating when you think about those two core texts, those two foundational texts, uh, Katie, of um, the liberal temperament or liberal ideas is that one is all about freedom from the government. That's what on liberty is all about, not being coerced by power. But on the subjection of women is about using the power of the government to create greater equality for among people. It's about forcing the government to give women the vote on, in terms of absolute equality. So that's the great liberal adventure, if you like, for me, the great liberal project, to believe that you can simultaneously increase the realm of individual freedom against state coercion and use the instruments of the state to create greater social solidarity. Those two things aren't in contradiction for me. That's what liberalism is. That's what liberalism demands of us in its highest form. I had Masha Gessen on the show, right. um, and it was so illuminating to read how she applies the theory of you know freedom from and freedom to yes. in the context of Putin and in Russia. And you do such an extraordinary job of distilling what liberalism is because, of course, what it means in Europe is something different, in, different. in the U.S. and it, it's so close to home in the way that you're applying it, anything from you know, a, a very peace-loving, peace-nicky sign in, in Wellfleet, you know, yes. that's saying we love everyone equally and right. also please buy my, you know, organic goat milk. Right. Exactly. Um, 
with, you know, Charles yoga de Gaulle. Yoga tonight at seven, yes. yes. Yeah, exactly. yoga tonight at seven. You know, with also looking at the Julie Jeune and, and, and Charles de Gaulle and, and, and others who are, who are not in the U.S. Incl- I love the lovable terrorist uh Emma Goldman. Yes, reference that you well, have she, there. you know, Emma Goldman, one of the things I wanted to do in this book, and I doubt that it will be, well, maybe it will be understood, was to, it's imagine this kind of letter to my daughter about liberalism. Here's what I believe. And uh, one of the things I wanted to do is make it plain that I don't think liberalism has any monopoly on human virtue or on political salience. And Emma Goldman was certainly not a liberal, certainly not in the beginning of her career, but she incarnates so many wonderful virtues that liberals have to learn from. And I would think that at the end of her life, not many people know this, she ended up in my country of Canada, in Toronto and Winnipeg, giving speeches on anarchism, but also on Eugene O'Neill and the Little Theater. And she was able to do that because Canada is a liberal country. It's a country that has very profound traditions of pluralism, free speech, and tolerance. And after having gone to the Soviet Union in its early years, which she thought was going to be a golden utopia and discovering with great quickness and honesty that it was a nightmare, she was able to end her life uh, in some serenity in Canada. I don't think that's an accident. I think Emma Goldman almost became a kind of liberal in spite of herself. Uh, anyway, I wanted the book to include lots of people who weren't liberals, but who are challenging or certainly admirable, even heroic in their challenge against liberalism. Liberalism is a ongoing exploration of the possibilities of pluralism. It's not an ideology or a dogma given to us. And if you're not prepared to uh, look on all sides, you're not a liberal. I appreciated how you confronted a very real issue about conservatives and, and why they dislike liberals and how it's important not to condescend yes. um, to and just to simply acknowledge that some things are racism and some things are classism and sexism yeah. and how to deal with those. I felt you you effectively spoke to. I wanted to hear a little bit about identity politics because I really enjoyed your approach to stepping back from what it means because right now everyone seems to be entrenched in sort of tribal warfare and uh, usually it's two people who probably would agree to with each other the, pitting themselves against yes, one exactly. another. Yes, exactly. There's a kind of uh, suicidal incestuous war between liberals and leftists which is leaving more casualties uh, and as we say, it's a cliche, it only helps Trump, right? <laughs> yes. But it's true. Um, so Two things I think are true, and it's one place where I disagree with Mark Lilla, though I don't, I don't, you know, I, I tried not to make the book polemical. He says, and I, he's wrong, but look at it more broadly. Two things I think are true. One is that all democratic politics have always been identity politics of one kind or another. I give the example of a very famous uh, political memo written in 1947 for Harry Truman saying, how are you going to win this election that no one says you can possibly win? And it says, well, you're going to do this for the Jews and this for the farmers, this for the Negroes, as they're called then, this for uh, – women were not a, a pressure group we at this point. Yeah. Right. They were voting, but they were included in the others. You'll do this for the Irish. And if you do all these things for all these pressure groups, you'll win. Well, that's identity politics, right? They weren't saying it, – and it's, a, it's simply not true that there was some big umbrella inspirational message that everybody was sharing in. There were specific messages tailored for these identity groups. Um, the trick about identity politics is you have to have enough identities to make up a politics. You now we have too many. And now we have too many, but we also have to be sure if we're on the liberal end of things, progressive end, where liberals and leftists make common cause, uh, I hope, uh, is that you can't make politics, democratic politics, including identity politics, into a business of excommunications and exclusions. 
democratic politics only work if they're inclusive and pluralistic. Now, that doesn't mean you have to make peace with people who believe things that you think are wrong, uh, are folly. But it does mean that you have to work hard not to seem to rule whole groups of people out. Now, that's the obvious one that we talk about now, are white working class men, for instance, right? And I think Barack Obama would be the first and the loudest to tell you, you may not be able to win that pressure group. You may not be able to yes. win that identity group, but you can do better. You can do better if you take their anxieties and concerns seriously and try to speak to them. And I think that that's the kind of work that good politicians instinctively do. But those fears, particularly with the white working class men, are happening in England as well. And as the question is, how, how does one respond to fear and how does one respond to change? Because the reality is we have this technological divide now between people who say, OK, I'm going to try to figure out how to learn this coding. And then you have someone like me who has no idea what my password is and just throws out the cell phone <laughs> out the window and says, well, I really hope I can continue as, as a freelance writer. Not as bad as mine. I just um, constantly, I cannot tell you how times a day I, you know, hit uh, forgot password and then <laughs> I get the prompt on my phone. My full warning. There, the, these divides are real. And one of the things I say in the book, and I think it's important is, is that you have to have enough respect for people who profoundly disagree with you to recognize that they profoundly disagree with you. They're not deluded, right? Yes. One of the favorite uh, pet delusions of progressives, liberals and leftists alike in the past centuries is that the people would be with us if they could only see their real interests, if they could see beyond right. Fox News right now. Right. What we talk about in the old days, we said beyond the Hearst newspapers, something that's always some someone. And the fact is, ugly as it may be, is that very often uh, what uh, working people are pursuing are not their economic interests, but their values and their fears. You know, it's one of the long stories in American life. Just finished a long piece about Reconstruction, and it comes in very well. Everybody who was on the right side of things were tearing their hair out saying, don't poor whites in the South understand that their interests align with poor blacks much more than they align with the interests of the oligarchs or the planters? And the answer is, is no, because their values, as they express them, were with maintaining their racial superiority. When you don't have very much, having those prerogatives feels terribly important to you. Now, that's ugly and wrong, and I'm not ashamed, I'm not reluctant to say it, but you have to be willing to recognize that that is an actual state of belief. You have to be willing to enter into somebody's fears if you're going to uh, alleviate those fears. You have to accept that those fears for them are real. But once you move beyond contempt, meaning I can happily sit down with someone and, and truly appreciate why they have their point of view. But the next question of how do I negotiate, and I'm saying myself, but I really mean people, um, let's say you are uh, pro-choice or let's say you're pro-gun control and you're not going to change your mind on that issue. How do you negotiate? I know how to negotiate without contempt, but I still don't know how to actually get that bill passed. Well, gun control. I know as a fact, and I'm not uh, reluctant to say this, I'm not a mushy centrist. Liberals are not mushy centrist. Okay. That gun control works as effectively on gun violence as antibiotics work on infections. That's to say, not perfectly, but overwhelmingly, and in the vast majority of the time, that's as robust a correlation as you will ever find in the social sciences. I know that. That's just true. If we had gun control laws in America of the kind they have in Canada or Britain, we would have gun violence Absolutely. at the level we do. I know that's true. I don't have to apologize for that. But I also recognize that the limits of my perception are not the limits of the world. There are people, for reasons that strike me as profoundly irrational, 
who are deeply committed to the notion that a gun is a symbol of their autonomy. So what do you do? Well, that's why I called the book A Thousand Small Sanities, because if you look at how really effective change gets made, it doesn't happen necessarily through confrontation in Supreme Courts or even in legislatures where these things get settled for all time. It happens through organized action that enables the situation to improve on the margins. And one of the great lessons of modern life is that things that improve on the margins tend to inspire virtuous circles, and then they improve a lot. If we can bring down gun violence on the margins, we'll be doing a terrific bit of good work. We already know, for instance, that in the absence of federal laws, which we are unlikely to get, uh, states that make it harder to get a gun have markedly lower levels of gun violence right there. Even though you can bring guns in from elsewhere, you can make a difference. One of the big lessons of liberalism is that you don't need to build a 10-foot wall to keep people from going to the wrong place. Building a four-foot wall is very effective. Nobody wants to climb over a four-foot wall. (laughs) And the more four-foot walls you bring, the more thousands small sanities you supply, the likelier you are to make effective change in that direction. So the choice shouldn't be between insisting on your point of view, even knowing you're never going to get it, or despairing because you can't get your point of view. There are all kinds of ameliorative actions that we can all take, whether we're worrying about gun control or we're worrying about um, women's rights, reproductive rights, health care. That's not to say that we shouldn't pursue the big solution, but we should simultaneously have enough realism to know that even in the absence of those kinds of triumphs, we can do enormous good. Um, I want to switch to another subject. I wanted to speak with you about spirituality and magic Mm -hmm. because there are Mm -hmm. two subjects which you have um, researched at length. I wanted to hear your thoughts on spirituality right now for you personally. And I also just wanted to hear about how you got invested in magic and and interested in it. Um, One of the things that I think is true is that you can believe, in fact, you have to believe that the realm of things which are truly open to scientific explanation. We talked a moment ago about siblings. There will never be a science of siblings. There will never be a science of love. There will never be a science of attraction. There will probably never even be a science of music. I spent a lot of time with so-called, you know, psychoacousticians. What they understand about the magic of music is extremely limited. Interesting, but limited. And as a consequence, for me, the idea of the spiritual is not the supernatural. It's the opposite of the supernatural. It just describes the huge range of human experience that is not susceptible to rule-like explanation. It's why we have poetry. It's why we have novels, because we recognize that the most fundamental and most significant things that happen to us are not susceptible to uh, single scientific explanation. They're only susceptible to close narrative description. It's one of the insights of liberalism for me, uh, Katie, is that uh, George Eliot, the great novelist, is an ideal liberal, was one of the great liberal thinkers, exactly because if you read a George Eliot novel, what happens always in it? Somebody starts off, whether it's um, a Jew like Daniel Deronda or a woman like Dorothea in Middlemarch, and they inexorably and slowly and incrementally end up being a totally different person at the end of the book than at the beginning. They don't have a big epiphany like Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. They just emerge as new people through 
the press of social experience and individual will. That, for me, is a model of what uh, real spirituality is, the, the spirituality we can all agree on. We can all respect the fact that most of the key experiences in our lives, like having kids, are not easily explicable. We all know why we, how we have kids. We know why we have kids to propagate the species. We know how it happens through the illusions of sex, which makes you think this is going to be a good experience. Or an easy one. An easy one. Um, but all of us know that we would put our, our lie down on a train track for our children, and none of us can justify that. It's not our genes making us do that. It's our choice, and we would do it only for our own children. Right. Uh, um, that, for me, is the realm of actual uh, spirituality. That's the realm where songs and poems and plays and novels are uniquely expert. So when I talk about liberalism, for instance, being a great spiritual exercise, for me it's one of the great spiritual exercises, it's exactly in as much as it tries to uh, place compassion and uh, a pluralism of uh, embraces and acceptances into the heart of what we do as social creatures. It says, be kind. It says, be nice. It yes. says, be nice. Be nice is an important principle. Um, don't let other people suffer unduly. Extend your circle of compassion out. Um, that, for me, is a spiritual adventure. That's the only authentic spiritual adventure we get. It's not a supernatural adventure, but it is, for me, uh, spiritual. Uh, magic is not unrelated to that, actually. I got interested in magic for the reason everyone gets interested in magic. I had an 11-year-old son who was interested in nothing but magic, card tricks. And my 11-year-old Luca is uh, one of those people who has the gift and the curse of obsession. You know, when he gets interested in something, that's all he's interested in. And he got very good at it. He got really good at doing card magic. And he began to uh, usher at a wonderful magic show called Monday Night Magic. And then he became... Very close to, he had a mentor, two mentors actually, the uh, the great sleight of hand man, Jamie and Swiss, and the great daredevil, David Blaine. And I was so interested in the kind of tug between these two remarkable men for the soul of a small magician that I wrote a piece for the magazine called The Real Work about it. And one of the things that I find so moving about magic is, stage magic is, that it is begins with the understanding that it isn't magic, right? That it's yes. going to simulate magic. It's going to produce magic. But the people who do it are technicians, artisans of the highest order who spend their whole lives trying to uh, conceal their technique, not show you what it is that they're capable of doing. I find that very moving and inspiring exactly because it's a model of what art is. We're all trying to make tricks that draw you in, find ways of including you in the Car trick, even though you know it's a trick and I know it's a trick, and that's what art does. I should add, Luca went on uh, doing card magic, and I went on watching him. We got to spend a lot of time in Las Vegas until at about the age of, I know, 15, I guess, 15 and a half, he discovered, as generations of young card magicians have discovered before him, that girls are not interested in card tricks. Yes. Girls have no interest in card tricks. Girls have limited interest in stage magic, but girls really do like music and they like guitar players. And Luca put down his deck of cards and he picked up a guitar and he has not had the guitar out of his hands uh, 
for much time since. You can also recommend to him Aurelia Thierry, who is actually performing right now in France, and I'm going to do a special plug for her. Um, she is an incredible performer. Her parents were in Cirque and Visib. Her grandparents were... Her, oh, wow. Her right. grandfather was Charlie Chaplin. Her brother's James Thierry, who's... Oh, my goodness. Yes. So she's Geraldine's yes. daughter? Uh, right. No, Victoria's. Victoria's daughter, right. And she is... Oh, Victoria was a clown, right? Victoria yes. was in the sorry, was in the clown. Right. Yes. And I think probably most dear to her heart, she is um, the first employee of the month. Um, <laughs> Aurelia is an exceptional performer. And why I brought her up, though, was I went to go see her rehearse. And she didn't want me to stay too long because she didn't want me to see all of the tricks and oh, the right. illusions. Yes, that's that's the beauty of magic. I've always said the happiest people I know, I mean, they're always miserable because it's a horrible life. But the happiest people I know when they're not actively miserable are magicians because they get to talk shop with each other and they have a real sh- you know shop talk is the most joyous form of human expression but most of us writers have almost no shop to talk right because what yes. is it I bought a new computer here's the size of my advance I hate my agent that's about the... or I feel inadequate thanks, yes. thanks so much for letting me know you got a seven book deal and exactly. a television series out exactly of yeah so exactly. happy that Maggie Gyllenhaal oh, for, will play for, exactly yes for Netflix all good for you for that's always what everyone says. And Netflix is developing it, right? Um, but that's all the shop we have to talk. Yes. Magicians have this insane shop talk on hand because they have all these amazing things that they do that are incredibly intricate, very highly technical, and they can't talk about it with anyone else. Right. They can only talk about it with each other. So when you hear a table full of laughter and you know rapidly exchanged talk, you know it's magicians because they're uh, finally able to talk to each other. Adam Gopnik, this has been so much fun. Part of me hopes that you will open a restaurant so I can come and hang out with you regularly. You know, that's. did you know that that's my fantasy? You know, everybody has a retirement fantasy. My retirement fantasy is actually to go, because I love to cook and I love to eat, is to go open a restaurant, some by 10-table restaurant, the kind I wrote a musical about, and, you know, be the grumpy guy in the kitchen and have uh, someone wonderful, maybe my son in the front of the house, and... And do that. So that is my fantasy. I even have a name for the restaurant. What is what I would it? Call it. I would call it Le Fauve, the Wild Beasts, you know, like the group of artists who Matisse was around. Yes. And then we'd have game on the menu. So it would be like a double play on Le Fauve, you know, Matisse in color. And we'll actually serve, uh, you know, elk chops or something. Um, thank you for being an employee of the month. I'm going to recommend people check out A Thousand Small Sanities. And please go to um, Adam Gopnik's website and you can follow him on all the socials because he has some performances and benefits coming up as well. Thank you so much, Adam Gopnik. It was a delight to be here. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. I want to thank Cameron Drews for editing this. I want to thank Lady Rizzo for composing our theme song. All of you for listening and encourage you to get on the Employee of the Month show. That's employeeofthemonthshow.com's mailing list. We only have a couple more episodes this slate, but we will be continuing to do the podcast and live shows. So do get on the mailing list. I rarely send out emails. They're um, usually with a typo so that you can feel better about your own autocorrect situations. And um, it's so that you can stay in touch and get to see our shows live as well as hear from the podcast. All right. I hope you have a good one. It's finally like relatively sane weather, at least where I am. So hopefully that is true for you and you're not in a tundra. I'm Katie Lazarus. Thanks for listening to Employee of the Month. <laughs>